Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. For more information and to donate online, go to 3cr.org.au. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. 3CR and Uprise Radio is broadcast on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Sovereignty has never been ceded. So-called Australia is a crime scene and we live and work on stolen lands. We pay our respects and stand in solidarity with First Nation elders past and present and extend that respect to all First Nations people listening today. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land. A place where you can play A place where you can bring your friends But you all have to stay Welcome We will meet you at the door You must tell us all your secrets Before you can explore The life you had before is gone That's never gonna change But we'll all love to hate you And we'll tell you every day Beware the hair is different When you step inside the door And smile there all watching Welcome to the Welcome to Uprise Radio. Thanks everybody for joining us on another episode and great to see you again, Sadie's and Jackson. Hey, James. Hey, Jackson. Hey, Sadie. Hey, James. Nice uh, to of, be back. That, of course, was Tones and I with uh, Welcome to the Madhouse off their uh, debut album, full-length album, also called Welcome to the Madhouse. I was lucky enough to see Tones and I a couple of months ago. Very good live concert. Good to see some live music. Yeah, I bet. I reckon that uh, song will get people going on their drive home. Yeah, it must have got snuck in in one of those, you know, brief moments when there was live gigs. Where was it on, James? How many people were there pressed up against one another? Mm, It was in St Kilda at the um, Palace Theatre. There was quite a lot of people there. Uh, There was a few events on around that time. Um, And speaking of the Madhouse, we're going to be talking on um, this show about the anti-lockdown protests. We are. And I was just thinking in the States this week, there was a 100,000-person festival in Chicago, uh, but 90% of the people were vaccinated. So it mm. was, you know, touted as a uh, fully safe, uh, COVID-compliant 100,000-person festival. And maybe we wouldn't be having anti-lockdown protests if uh, we had more than, what are we now, maybe 14% of eligible Adults here in Victoria have had their first shot. Uh, maybe we wouldn't be uh, having these these protests if um, we had a few more people vaccinated. Yeah, I got my AstraZeneca vaccine last week. I booked through hot docs. It was very easy and very quick. Mm-hmm. I wish I had an applause button to hit. Yay, well done. <laughs> I've had my Pfizer shot. Nice. Me too. When did you get yours, James? Uh, I had mine last Wednesday at the uh, Victorian Aboriginal Health Clinic, not too far from 
3CR. Did you have any reactions, both Sadie and James, to put at ease anyone out there who might be feeling a little nervous? How did you feel in the aftermath of your shot? Look, in all honesty, a little bit of a headache, but nothing that wasn't, you know, unbearable. That's good. Headache you know, dealable, yeah. For a, yeah, for a couple of days, but Ooh, it went away. That's, <laughs> a couple of day headaches a little different. That's, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, but I mean, I'm I'm not adverse in those situations to taking some Panadol, so it was pretty manageable. And you, James? Uh, no, I know side effects here. I was um, feeling great, actually. You know, I think that might have just uh, boosted me further and further into, you know, immortality where I'm hoping to go. But, well, perhaps we should get on with the show. Um, we're going to have plenty of time to chat. We're not having a guest on the show. We have got enough to cover for ourselves. And I'm sure it's something that a lot of listeners have been following. So, yeah, on today's show, we're talking about the anti-lockdown movement. And there are many places to start with the how or why this has come about. I think there's some pretty easy targets, Murdoch, Morrison, the divisor left or capitalism itself. But more specifically, though, I think this is another example of what surely has to be the most useless Australian government we've ever seen. Morrison has handled the pandemic worse than the Hawthorne handle coaching exits. But I just want to rewind back to one of Scott's mentors uh, to his time in office. Since 2001, the Australian government has developed foreign policy from a security lens first and foremost. And when the COVID-19 pandemic hit the shores of Australia, even the left was saying the government should close the borders after years of campaigning the opposite. But what has followed across the country has been a policy that is punitive and in line with a state founded as a penal colony, one that has ensured security laws are in place first before securing vaccines, or better still, supporting the ability to manufacture the vaccine in Australia. I think a common feeling for many today is there's no nuance in politics or society in general. Issues are presented as binary. We must make a choice about which side you stand on. Every issue is given the, will you stand on the right side of history treatment and then forgotten a week later as it moves out of the news cycle. But this modern division didn't start with Donald Trump. Remember that, remember that guy? This is the legacy instilled by the Australian and US leaders of the war on terror. Then US President George Bush declared that you are either with us or against us. And, for, and later, former Australian Prime Minister John Howard said, we will decide who comes into the country and under what circumstances. I think there's some big issues that are concern, concerning about the anti-lockdown protests. The response from active, activists to collaborate with the police to name and shame people who attended the protests. And of course, the growing influence of the far right. I mean, the public health, not just on the day of the protest, but spreading a misinformation is an issue that I think many, uh, many media outlets have already covered. But for most people who have moderate views on society and politics, it's easy to dismiss the actions of the state and how they responded to the protests. But for those that want to fundamentally change society, we should be deeply concerned about how these reactions will impact us the next time we're on the streets. Now, I just want to be clear, I do not support the anti-lockdown protests. I trust the science and, as I said before, I've had one vaccine and will soon be fully vaccinated. And I think the lockdowns do work. But there's a lot to consider, I think, for the left and any concerned Australians about the anti-lockdown 
movement. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting what you said about murder, you know, that there's sort of these uh, media channels that are uh, uh, pushing some anti-vax or, or, you know, um, COVID misinformation. Interestingly, um, just yesterday, YouTube barred Sky News from uploading any new content for a week because due to COVID misinformation. Um, that is mm. very fine news. <laughs> It, it is a strange feature of this very strange age that we're living in that the many people who would normally be rightfully sceptical of increased police powers and state surveillance are now celebrating police shutting down protests and calling for rule breakers to have the book thrown at them. It's like just a strange occurrence uh, on the landscape. Mm. I, I'm not really sure how to respond to it. We know that that informs enforcement affects different people in society very, very differently. Um, mm. So when you call for a blanket about deciding what's good or what's moral or what's right or wrong, then um, there's a difference between what the, the law states or what morality is and how, is it, how it's enforced. Yeah, and yeah. I think that that is like, you know, laws are clearly, they're designed to be, you know, mostly kind of, just written on a piece of paper and interpreted that way. Obviously, they can be, like you said, Mercedes, they can be uh, applied differently to different people. But I think, you know, what the left and, you know, particularly a lot of our listeners and, you know, people on the far left might do is look in between those laws and say, well, well, actually, we don't agree with that law. It's not, we don't accept things just based on it being against the law or not against the law. Most protests are you know, really not legal, you know, strikes in this country are not legal. A lot of the ways in which we may protest are not legal, but we do a calculation to say, well, we are prepared to break that law because you're locking up refugees or, you know, you're killing Aboriginal uh, people in the back of police cars or in police cells or whatever the issue may be, that that, that issue is more important than, you know, the $100 fine or, you know, the move on order, all of those kind of things. But this is a different landscape, I think. It's not just, and I'm not saying we should be supporting, um, you know, we should be out protesting about the lockdown. But why is it that we accepting that? And where is the nuance here? Why is the left accepting that these rules and this should be the response that the state is imposing on us what we should do? And the response is from, you know, from a libertarian right-wing argument of, oh, don't tell us what to do. Mm. I think, like, you've both touched on it a little bit, how this occurs, and a part of it is the dehumanisation of those people that are going out to protest the anti-lockdown. There's a lot of work done, even in the mainstream progressive press, to kind of paint anti-lockdown protesters as conspiratorial, uneducated, anti-science, selfish bogans. And I'm sure some of the people in attendance may fit that bill perfectly. But it's also important to remember that people are protesting due to some catastrophic policy failures, and many of which are the result of various governments, as James said, treating this health crisis as a security threat. 
And, you know, the rush to secure individual states or the economy, as the coalition government sees it, you know, has seen the deployment of police and the army um, in spaces where there really should have been health professionals. Like we remember in Melbourne very well the shutdown of the Flemington Towers under police guard. And just uh, on Monday this week, Southwestern Sydney saw the deployment of 300 soldiers to enforce health orders and take part in door knocking to assess compliance among other unspecified duties. And, you know, the lack of like simple, easy to understand, appropriate financial support for those most impacted needs to be considered. I think that's one thing that's pushing people to the the streets. And instead of that appropriate financial support that's simple and easy to access, we have tremendous fines, you know, unsurprisingly meted out most readily to those who can least afford them. Like here in Melbourne, when we had our our big lockdown in 2020 between April and September, a report released by the government in February this year found that the 10 lowest socioeconomic areas had more than double as many fines handed out per capita compared to those in higher socioeconomic areas. So the highest areas were like Dandenong and Brimbank who had Almost, you know, Dandenong had almost 6% of all the fines given out were given out in Dandenong and Brimbank had 5% of all the fines handed out or just under 5%. And we're seeing the same thing start to happen in Sydney. Uh, Sydney-based social scientist Leanne Weber, uh, early research of hers suggests that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders are more likely to be targeted by police in the first weeks of Sydney's lockdown, you know, making up less than 2% of the total population uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people have been 9% of police and army enforcement checks and 15% of all follow-up arrests, which reflects what we already know about endemic racism within the force. So when you get a force like the police or the army to tackle a pandemic, it's not surprising that those biases and tendencies that they operate with come into this new space completely inappropriately. And I think, you know, all of that is pushing people onto the streets as well. Definitely. And also and the possibility of re-traumatising people by having uh, police and the army on the streets and knocking on your door. You know, that's definitely something to be considered. Um, and, yeah, without, without a shadow of a doubt, already existing issues in policing and enforcement were only reinforced by the more punitive measures brought in with COVID. And would we need, you know, hard borders? Would we need to be talking about incursions if we had a national approach to this thing instead of this kind of siloed state by state? You know, if you approach it in a certain way, if you want to tackle this threat in a certain way, we're going to be more on board in supporting you. And, you know, the mixed messaging around vaccines, around the use of lockdowns, like all of this has just been, you know, so ham-fisted. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot, I guess, about I don't think we can necessarily go into the nuances of what some of those strategies may or may not work because I think um, there are clearly people who have a lot more expertise in some of these areas about, you know, controlling pandemics and things like that. I mean, I think that, Closing the borders, uh, you know, the state borders and the federal borders has played a you know a huge impact. It doesn't. It helps being in an island in the middle of nowhere. That that helps to make the um, spread contained. And I think I think it's actually you know if we had federal leadership, it was able to you know organize anything that we would uh, 
it wouldn't matter about the, like you said, the kind of siloed responses. But because part of that, I would say, is that some people have uh, an ability to think, some leaders in the different states have an ability to think, you know, in a broader, bigger picture about how to organise things. But a lot of the resources are controlled by the federal government. So, you know, the vaccines, a lot of the, you know, the quarantine should be controlled by the the federal government, a lot of the where the big issues have stemmed from, where the outbreaks have stemmed from, where the solution could have come from, those issues and that responsibility lies with the federal government. And as I said at the opening, I honestly think this is uh, by far the worst government that I think, well, I would, you know, call in, please, if you have a uh, example of a worse Australian government. Scott Morrison is not just, you know, it's, People talk about corruption as a way to just, you know, uh, handle uh, like an insult. But this government has shown like that they've been, they're inept at organising things. And the corruption is that they don't actually, they're not able to uh, have any sort of transparency in anything that they actually organise. So I don't know how they could. Even when they're caught, you know handing out half a billion dollars to an organisation that never asked for it or paying hundreds of millions of dollars to add car parks to luxury golf courses. Like, no one takes responsibility. I mean, yeah, people Mm. are being raped in ministerial offices and there's no change. You know, this is not a government that has any accountability. And, you know, sitting atop, I think we need to, you know, talk a little bit, you know, in this episode about some of the nefarious forces that are working within the anti-lockdown protesters to, to push, you know, some of these valid concerns to some more, you know, fringe and, and far right uh, tendencies. But, you know, I'm trying to get inside the heads of the people uh, that, that are there, but, you know, sitting atop all of this is the failure to, the va- to vaccinate the community. And if it had been taken seriously from the start, as you just said, James, you know, hard hard uh, state lockdowns and uh, incredible punitive fines and police on the streets and army streets could, could have been avoided. But it's so ideological. I mean, you go all the way back to the start and instead of using the government agency that every year rolls out a national vaccine program for in- influenza and has done so for decades, instead of using that agency to roll out the vaccine, the federal government in its inestimable wisdom decided to give it to an inexperienced contractor, an agency that had never done it before, I think, cynically, to artificially boost jobs numbers so they could say, oh, look how many jobs we've created in the middle of a pandemic. Jobs that you know have, have poorly trained, poorly resourced, poorly directed vaccine rollout by people who've never done it before, and those jobs will disappear once the vaccine is done and also went about trying to get the best deal, you know, on which vaccine, oh, you know, we're not going to pay X for this. We're going to, you know, try and do Y and, and all of that, all of that crap, you know, instead of actually making it the absolute focus to get as much of the population vaccinated as possible, they've been trying to like win little political battles, like, you know, create more BS jobs, you know, like it, it just, yeah, they are, they're a terrible government. You are right. And I think that in in, in lieu of uh, securing vaccines early on, what we have seen is more punitive measures, lockdown of borders and all of those sort of things. And this sort of idea that as we were just talking about before, we see people even on the left kind of going, no, we need to lock down the state. So it's this reinforcement in a psyche about arbitrary borders and lines and, and who is included and excluded, which Absolutely. is... Um, 
very, very dangerous and has real-life consequences, for, particularly when that becomes a national strategy like it already is about uh, indefinite detention. So, you know, in lieu of having vaccines, what we have instead is developing uh, mechanisms which are starting to become more accepted. The othering. Even even anti-vax people are othered. Like I hear people say all the time, oh, well, if, if these people don't want to get the vaccine, I mean, the virus will just take care of them as though, you know, people's hesitancy or concerns mean that they deserve to die. And while I don't agree with the anti-vax position, I think callously saying, well, if you're not going to protect yourself or me, then the outcome is you should die, is just part of this broader othering and dehumanisation rather than, you know, taking responsibility for getting the communication right and reassuring people and even incentivizing people to get on board this public health movement. But there's a lot of just kind of dehumanising and othering those. Um, But, yeah, I mean, there is also, if we're going to talk about vaccines, we have to talk about anti-vaxxers. You know, Jeff Sparrow highlighted last week that, the right-wing outlet xyz.net breathlessly claimed that more people attended the recent lockdown rallies than last year's Invasion Day events, a very obvious falsehood. And The Guardian has been reporting that a German-based organisation called Worldwide Demonstrations, um, a platform, they, they, they platform a slew of QAnon, white nationalists and Islamophobic content, had a direct hand in organising the Australian protests. How concerning is it to the two of you that there's this kind of growing strange coalition between the far right and the anti-vax wellness libertarian movement? Oh, absolutely not surprising at all because I think that the kind of the idea of wellness um, definitely feeds into white supremacist idea of the authentic pure body right so you know there's definitely a crossover about um how we consider what the body is it being pure authentic we kind of see in wellness lots of a cultural appropriation about wanting to get back to you know you know so i don't think that element is very surprising at all i think that the wellness um industry or people who are that that way inclined are probably more at risk, I would say, of being co-opted by idea, you know, these sort of white supremacist or far right groups. I don't think that that's a, a surprising leap. But what I think has happened in COVID is a lot of these arguably disparate conspiracist groups, like or not necessarily conspiracists, but you know, people who were um, into wellness or that, you know, or sovereign citizens or flat out fash, there's sort of this now an umbrella in which to kind of come together on a few different ideas that perhaps were once considered a little bit more siloed. And so as a result of COVID and and lockdowns and vaccines and all of these things that has shifted the political and social landscape so dramatically in such a short period of time as maybe um, allowed for a space for those groups to come together and find commonality. I think it's unsurprising because, you know, I think there's two things. The, the far right is the fastest growing, you know, political ideology movement groups in Australia by a long, long way. You know, I think not just through, you know, these kind of little, you know, groups and protesting and wellness and all things like that. But it's also, you know, you need to look at Parliament, you look at Fraser Anning, you know, you look at Potato Head, 
you know, you can look at Pauline Hansen's resurgence, all of these kind of people have got a huge grip. Yeah, inside Parliament, but not just that, you know, there's, I think the same article that that Jeff had posted also talked about, you know, some of these people were claiming that this is the biggest, proudest day since the Reclaim Australia protest started. You know, this is, these, the far right and fascist groups are growing, you know, massively. And I think, you know, what happened throughout society is we see that you know, when there is a crisis within capitalism, you know, that it's people go one way or the other. They look to left organisations or they look to the right because they're looking for a purpose of what is going on. And I think there are a lot of people who perhaps didn't really think that much about what was going on generally in society or, you know, or they were. They were disillusioned about their place in society or the government, you know, authority, things like that. And for a lot of people the pandemic and the lockdowns and all these kind of things have thrown everything up in the air and people just like, how am I meant to comprehend any of these things? I can't understand what's going on. There are no left organizations providing any leadership. You know, there's no, the union movement is at its lowest point. It has been for decades. There's no big left organizations. You know, I couldn't tell you where Anthony Albanese has been for the past 18 months, the Labor Party. Approving massive corporate tax cuts. Yes, That's he's getting rid of the, the progressive tax, cuts and... tax regime. But, you know, there's no, yes, sure, there's some statements from the Greens and, and other activists here and there. But where are people going to find other political guidance, political consciousness? And, it, you know, I think we can see in society, if it doesn't come from the left, it comes from the right. And that's what is really scary about these anti-lockdown protests and the movement that I think, you know, it has actually a bit of a global uh, pattern as we've seen. I think you know you mentioned before, Jackson, about the German influence. Free Citizens of Casal is the online group that were mentioned in the Guardian article, and then it, it sort of started all of these separate events online uh, in different areas that just got proliferated through different Telegram. Telegram, I think, is kind of the main communication hub, but it sort of emerged out of there and then started to get the branding maybe a little better, and then it just kind of picked up. Well, I think um, I might just play a little clip here that is uh, talking about, I guess, some of the response from the state, and in particular, the New South Wales uh, police force. Morning, Premier. Morning, ladies and gents. 227 tickets issued overnight for breaches of the health orders, 107 of those linked back specifically to the protest on Saturday. So backing out those tickets, can I thank the community because we are seeing an increase in compliance across particularly Sydney metro area and those beach area with the health orders. So we thank you for working with us. We've received some 10,000 Crime Stoppers reports since Saturday in terms of criminal behaviour and breaches of the health order at the protest, uh, which is an amazing um, you know, outcry by the community, not just in terms of their disgust at the protest, but the way that the police, the Mounted Unit particularly, were treated during that. We have a strike force established and they will continue to investigate and chase down every individual that we can identify will be either arrested and or given tickets for their behaviour. And it's not just about whether it's an unauthorised protest, it was about the danger that they put all of us at in terms of the Delta variants. Um, there are some discussions, there's some information on the internet at the moment about a potential 
protests this Saturday. Can I just put this warning out now to everyone is that we will be heavily policed. We will be taking the ground very early. You will be arrested and protested. The community has spoken about that behaviour. The Premier has spoken about that behaviour and it won't be tolerated again. Thank you. Now, I think there's a couple of things about that. One is that, you know, last year we just came off the back of uh, basically a whole year, particularly in the United States, of protests against police and their behaviour. And, you know, that was mirrored by protesting here. Mercedes and I were both involved in helping with the Black Lives Matter protests last year. And this, all of these powers and the you know, the spotlight that they're giving to police at these press conferences as part of this. This would have to be, you know, if you were a PR company trying to help rebuild the profile of the police, this is what you would ask for, isn't it? I mean, I'm not in no way talking about any conspiracy around here, but this is what the public is buying into. You know, 10,000 people have contacted Crime Stoppers. I mean, or a protest of 3,000 people. Great rebranding by, you know, the states, the political leaders, helping the police to, you know, make themselves look good again after what has been, you know, worldwide an embarrassment for them. And and 1,000 police were deployed on Saturday through Sydney. Um, there were mounted police at Hyde Park prepared. They locked down, uh, outlawed any Uber drivers or taxi services, locked down train stations, in order to stop people coming to this protest. I mean, this is a pretty outrageous show of force for anyone, whether you're protesting for anti-lockdown or not. You know, this is a pretty big exercise in mobilising huge police forces to be able to put these mechanisms in place. Yeah, and it's, 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 a, it's been a growing trend, hasn't it? You know, you arrive to a, an anti-racism rally and, you know, there might be a thousand people showing up to you know kick the fash off the streets there might be 300 fash and there'll be 600 police officers who weirdly are all have the same haircuts and sunglasses as the fash but they stand there you know in between and it's just an incredible amount of numbers i just find it very strange that you know if you want to you know to your point james about public relations, like if you want to get a whole lot of people on side, you know, talk a little bit about wanton animal cruelty, but the irony of saying that, you know, protesters were putting mounted police and their horses at risk, like if you've ever seen mounted police with protesters on, on foot, it's, a, it's a, not exactly a um, fair fight and it's, it's, it's really a way to intimidate and terrify uh, groups of people that are gathering on the streets. And I think for anyone on the left, you know, who already saw the blowback last year when the Black Lives Matter protests uh, were organised and, and went ahead, in, you know, by you guys and others uh, in between um, the two very large lockdowns that we had, you know, there was, you know, some public, even though it's an extremely valid, noble cause, I would say more valid than I want to go and get pissed with my mates or I want my cafe to turn over a little more profit, you know, like the, the cause is is just. But there was, you know, blowback to that in the, in the public health context. And I, I was talking to a colleague this week at work 
you know, who, who made a point of coming and saying to me how disgusted they were by the anti-lockdown protested, how selfish they were, putting everybody at risk. I said, did you feel the same way about the Black Lives Matter protests last year? And they actually said, well, yes, I did. I think they put everyone at risk. I think they put Indigenous people at risk. And I said, well, they, they took COVID uh, safety steps. You know, they were handing out masks. They had hand sanitizer, all these things. And this colleague's point was that, Surely in a global pandemic, we can find other ways to protest that aren't mass assembly. You know, why couldn't we have a person arrive on the, on the steps of parliament for 60 minutes every hour for 40 days, you know, and you have thousands of people come and stand there and continue the message? Or why couldn't you line everyone up, you know, 30 metres apart down a highway for kilometres and kilometres holding signs? You know, there are other creative ways. And I just wondered whether the two of you as, as organisers could, could reflect on, you know, why mass boots on the ground are so important, even in the middle of a, of a pandemic. Well, I just want to clarify well, that we're not those... organisers of the protest, that that was war who organised the protest, but we, we um, supported them by helping out with the sound. Mercedes, do you want to go? That's correct. Yeah, and, and just on that, that those, the, there have been um, last year different ways of trying to figure out how we can safely do those protests. And as you said, war with the Black Lives Matter protest last year, um, there were masks, everyone, even without Invasion Day, you know, in groups, separated. Uh, it was ensured that it was as COVID safe, you know, so that everybody there was, um, that everyone, one, could attend and that they were also um, safe and ensuring that, Public health was uh, at the, you know, at the forefront, as well as obviously what were, what the message was. But I think there were other ways of trying to do that last year. Like there were car cavalcades. Um, the unions did a car cavalcade. There was one early on um, in terms of for universal basic income. Um, so there have been other ways of trying to figure out how to protest during the pandemic and even that car cavalcade at the, for the refugees as well at front of Park Hotel was done as a car cavalcade and everybody still got fined despite mm. being in their vehicles um, and not getting out of their vehicles. A lot of people still received fines and that area out front of Park Hotel was locked down and people even on their way to the Park Hotel were fined because it defied the state home orders. So even though people were in their cars, not getting out of their cars and doing that, it was still used to stop the protest going on. So there were other ways of trying to figure out how that could be done. Um, I think, um, and no matter, like, no, I'm not, um, certainly not targeting your colleague or friend. And I think that that's a sentiment that, you know, I think lots of people would share as well. And I think that's why, you know, at the start of this show, I talked about, I think if you're, you know, moderate, then you would see no problem with this. I mean, I see that there is absolutely no way we will get political change by one person standing out front of parliament with a, with a billboard. You know, we've seen with 250,000 people standing out the front of parliaments with billboards, we still can't get change. So it actually, you know, it takes many facets of determined ongoing political campaigning to try to get social change. And even then, sometimes, you know, we're up against the, 
we're up against the whole capitalist system. We've got we're up against people that control the millions, that you know control the media. You know, it's very hard to get your message across there. And I actually, I think that the reason I'm against the lockdown protest is because I don't believe in what they're protesting about. I believe in protests. I just, I lockdowns work. Uh, you know, COVID nineteen is a huge problem that is killing people and we need health related responses to it. I think that the the people who are, you know, part of the protests are either, you know, misinformed, miseducated, or like we said before, they're part of, you know, a growing, uh, you know, right wing who want to do the opposite to, I think, what us and probably most of our listeners are wanting to do. You know, I think in in probably two weeks' time, we'll again see, you know, 10, 20, perhaps up to 40,000 people at the MCG, at Marvel Stadium, at Indonesia Park, watching football games. I don't see any reason why we can't have, you know, 5,000, 10,000 people in the city at a protest if we are going to do, you know, if we're going to have, you know, events like that. Performance, yeah. But I... I would just, I would, if there's going to be 1,000 people in an anti-lockdown protest, I hope there's 5,000 people there countering that protest. You know, I think the difficult thing at the moment is that the, some people, I think, on the left will say, well, I don't support those protests. But in the past, when the far-right protest will have a counter-protest, we can't do that at the moment. So we don't know how to express ourselves. And so I think people are then just falling to a safe habit of aligning themselves with what the state's response is. Mm-hmm. And there's no other um, tried or tested mechanism on how of how to explore what that might look like because the state's role has been punitive from the get-go. Um, so in terms of developing community, a community health-based response from the ground up hasn't really been... Um, and, you know, there's been fabulous work done in that area, but in terms of the state, that hasn't been uh, what it looks like. So this is maybe for people to go towards those punitive measures is because that's all that's on offer rather than actually exploring how else we could have done this. Yeah. Well, I think we have solved that issue and come to the end of another episode of Uprise Radio. <laughs> Jacqueline Mercedes. Good to uh, Thank you both. see you again. Yeah, it was fun. Thank you to the both of you for your time and your considered thoughts. Now to exit the program, we're going to go out with Johnny Cash with his cover of Hurt. And I guess, you know, sincerely, there are people that are, you know, obviously hurting throughout the pandemic. And, you know, I guess for those that are hurting us all with their misinformation and others, they can maybe have some reflection in the dulcet tones of Johnny Cash. I hurt myself today To see if I still feel 
I focus on the pain The only thing that's real The needle tears a hole The old familiar sting Try to kill it all away But I remember everything What have I become? My sweetest friend Everyone I know Goes away in the end And you could have it all Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.